Something new is supported by listeners like you. Visit joelbnew.com and help this podcast continue to grow, thrive, and be a part of the creative conversation. This is NPR. Hey guys, welcome to Season 4, Episode 7. Ah, crazy town. Um, So much is happening. Uh, Before we get to my interview with the lovely Farrah Alvin, you guys are in for such a treat. We had a blast, recorded it right here in the apartment, and uh, sang our face off, and we talked our faces off. Um, It was a good time. Lots Lots of faces off um make some kind of John Travolta reference here but before we get to Farah, I wanted to bring some on-air awareness to my Kickstarter campaign um for those who have been listening all season long or longer uh maybe t- since a year ago when I first wrote and premiered the song Cabot Cove at my duplex concert last April of 2015 um my chief endeavor for uh, the podcast, at least for the first half of season four, has been to write, workshop, and produce this six-song EP of Murder, She Wrote-inspired songs. And that is exactly what we have done, thanks to the amazing guests that I've had on, who've been so generous of their time and talents to learn and sing these songs and help inspire them to be better songs. The One Train... I don't know if you can hear it with these new microphones. You probably can. Um, wouldn't be, wouldn't literally wouldn't be here without the one train. <laughs> uh, it's a commute joke. The people who have listened and encouraged uh, adding the YouTube element to this season, especially for these Murder She Wrote songs, uh, has, has really uh, given this project and the podcast and my artists uh, a, a visible boost. And and now here we are. Uh, we are, when this episode comes out, um, on Monday, April 4th, uh, we will have Monday and Tuesday left to pledge to the campaign, and then Wednesday morning at 9am Eastern Standard Time, uh, the Kickstarter doors close. They kick those doors close, and it's kick stop. (laughs) This campaign is kick stopped. Um... I love that I repeated the joke, even though like I can't hear my audience not laughing. Which is which is the number one rule in comedy is if they didn't laugh, just say it again. Always funnier the second time. The Cabot Cove Kickstarter campaign, say that five times fast, has been so much fun. It's crazy pants how this has taken off in like the last week alone. Um there's an enormous spike. To give you an idea, uh, when I recorded this interview with Farah, that was on March 19th. And on March 19th, we had 37 backers, and we were 21% funded. As of this morning, when I'm recording this opening monologue, which is Saturday, April 2nd, um, we have 109 backers, and we are 64% funded. That's crazy. We have tripled both of those numbers, basically. When I was coming up with incentives for the Cabot Cove EP Kickstarter campaign, 
um, the $12 incentive included a shout out on my podcast. That is back when I thought maybe like 40 or 50 really generous people that I that would just come out of the woodwork um, who just happened to like me and Murder, She Wrote and giving to Kickstarter campaigns would appear and fund it. And the fact that I have 109 people, and hopefully more by the time this comes out, um, is really, really something to behold. And I can't believe that this is happening, but here we go. Um, in the attempt to make listing 109 names more fun, we're going to add a dance track. This is the Something New theme song remix by DJ Joel Dickinson. DJ, turn up that podcast theme music. What? Five, six, seven, eight, Chase, Corey, Jason, Jessica, Kate, Frank, Dan, Jessica, Charles, Scott, Ben, Lorenzo, David, Garth, Drew, Catherine, Liz, Grace, Eric, Molly, Shane, Carissa, Lori, Christine, Debbie, Susan, Ramona, Marion, Eric, Rebecca, Anne, Michael, Gillian, Leah, Rob, Alan, Kareem, Amy, Anne, Mariko, Mike, Mark, Joanna, Eli, Leah, Suzanne, Tamara, Bill, Marita, Karen, Jenny, Melissa, Cirilla, Rob, Emma, Mia, Hillary, Jennifer, Melanie, Lisa, Carl, Kelly O'Hara, David, Jamie, Karen, Charlie, Ramsey, Justin, Jobeth, Chandra, Tom, Jessica, Erica, Juliana, Charlie, Lisa, Jason, Uncle Scott, Stephanie, Nathan, Annalisa, Bill, David, Johanna, Lauren, Liz, Marissa, Kevin, Tiffin, Stephanie, Drew, Kevin, Lauren, Billy, Carl, Donalyn, Andy, Sue, Liz, Kate, Nika, Kendall, Jay, Mark, Dan, Aaron, Christy, Adam, Chiprion. Thank you all so much. Um, it's My heart is so full from reading 109 names. My mouth is also very dry, so I'm going to sit back, edit this interview with Farah so it sounds all nice and purty, um, and enjoy my, my iced coffee, because that's what I do on Saturday mornings. So long opening monologue short. Thank you all so much for your support over the years on the podcast and of my writing. And um, I look forward to delivering good news via social media on Wednesday morning that we've made it. Um, If you have not pledged or if you want to increase your pledge, please feel free to do so. I would be so grateful. Um, And if you pledge any amount at all, um, one of the... One of the funner incentives, I'm told, is that I will, if I know you on 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 social media, and please find me, I'll friend you. Um, you are my friend. If you if you believe in what I do, and you can pledge something, you are obviously my friend. But seriously, if we are friends on Facebook and you pledge, um, and I haven't already done so, I will take your profile picture 
I will add a tiara to your face, and I will appoint you an honorary dame in honor of Dame Angela Lansbury, who is unavailable for comment for this album. Smile, emoticon. We should all just start saying the emoticons that we would be posting if we were typing things on social media. Winky emoticon. Okay, for real this time, I'm going to enjoy my iced coffee and I'm going to hang out with the dog, um, who's just so freaking cute. Um, I love you all. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, without further ado, here's my interview with Fair Alvin. Read your bio out loud because okay. that makes everyone comfortable. Okay. And then, <laughs> and then I'm gonna ask you some questions. Okay, perfect. Cool. Uh, this is Joel B. New, and you're listening to Something New. My chance to talk with some of the savviest theater artists in the industry to hear their stories, play through, and premiere a brand new original song, and get to the heart of what makes them the working, multifaceted artists they have come to be. Today we have a very special guest whose Broadway credits include "It Should Have Been You." Nine, The Look of Love, Saturday Night Fever, Grease, and A Christmas Carol. Off-Broadway credits and original cast recordings include The Last Smoker in America, The Marvelous Wonderettes, for which she was nominated for a Drama Desk Award. Very cool. I Love You Because, and many more. She's also a certified holistic health counselor, a graduate of the Institute for Integrative Nutrition and SUNY Purchase, and is AADP certified, which I had to look up. Her private nutrition practice works with individuals to find health and balance in their life through better eating and lifestyle. She's also a songwriter and a sometimes blogger. Obviously, I'm talking about Fair Alvin. Fair Alvin, thanks for being on my podcast. Thanks for having me, Joel News. Yeah, how are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. Good, good. I'm, I'm glad to see you here. Yeah, I'm happy, very happy to be here. Thank you. <laughs> um, Fair and I met a number of years ago back when I was in grad school. And um, if you listen to some of the earlier demos for uh, my musical that I'm co-writing with Jay Navarro and Jenny Stafford called Awakening, um, Farah was the first person to ever sing, like, What's It Like? Right. Um, and, and that, what's, well, I remember someone like, I the one, know. someone I used to know, I love yeah. that song, the Thank duet with the women, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Farah has been... Fair, fair, I've been a long-time fan of Farah's. Oh, I, I met you. you, well, through the Graduate Musical Theater Writing Program at, at NYU. Tish. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you were pretty chummy with, like, Gabby Alter and Tommy Newman. Tommy Newman. Now, were they the same class as you? Yes. Or, oh, yeah, okay, we're all the okay. same cycle. Right. So I don't think... I didn't do Awakening as your thesis, but I no. came on board at a later reading. Yes. And, yeah, so I met you. i sort of been exposed to yeah. you guys. And I think I may have worked... I can't remember if I worked with Jay uh, O'Connor Navarro for clarity um before or after but he did a I did something at theater works with him either I, I don't know at some point I think it may have been after we did Probably. awakening together. what did you do with theater works oh I did like a million kind of workshops and things so I don't even remember if it was something that went if it went to production I can't remember if I went with it oh in fact I don't think I did I think it may have been the dual titled Fancy Nancy or Duck for President, depending on where you, where which market it was being sold in. But we workshopped that, and then I never like I it was just I used to do a lot of stuff. My friend Kevin Delagula does a ton of work for Theater Works, mm-hmm. and he would kind of call in what I call like the Theater Works All Stars, you know, to kind of do a handful of actors. We used to do a ton of stuff for mm-hmm. especially those. That was like a sketched a sketch style show, kind of like kids saturday night live so yeah it was sort of like quick it was they did like six books as opposed to one book Mm. six or seven books in one pass so you'd change a lot of characters a lot of costumes and be a lot of different people and those were the kind of things i did a lot of workshops up for them 
But didn't cool. necessarily go on, say, the mini tour right. afterward. So yeah. you, you no, no bus and truck for you. Not for me. I skipped that part in my Just career. So, <laughs> for you know. better or worse? Yeah, for better or worse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, Fair, I just read your very impressive bio, oh, thank and you. I'm a huge fan of your voice. Thank I was um, doing some more stalking this morning to see what you've been up to, and <laughs> I listened to your uh, your performance of Solitaire oh, that Seth yeah. Dutsky, uh <laughs> analyzed. Yes. And um, I don't know if it's like, I think, you know in the morning in New York, like, you don't have all your walls up yet, mm. and so like, I'm just very, like, in bed, and I'm like, writing down questions I want to ask you. And then you start singing, and like I'm not like I started to cry. Oh, I was crying this morning because of your performance. That's sweet, thank you. It's, it's beautiful. Go check it out if you've not heard her, um, and listen to Seth deconstruct it. Yeah, the deconstruction is definitely uh, part of it. I, there's That's two. There's two YouTube videos of me singing solitaire. One is with Seth's deconstruction, which is the original performance that I did of that song, and then I did it on Seth's show. Seth speaks for Neil Sedaka. He had Neil on as a guest. Oh, cool. and it's actually I like. I like the original performance better, personally, but the second one, at the end, Neil gets up and gives me a big hug, so it's kind of like Aww. a special memory, and I'm glad it got caught on video. We should turn, like have a third one where like you splice it together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and maybe we do like some still images of birds flying, or yeah. like someone playing solitaire, turning the cards yeah, over. Yeah, it's like really sad yeah, and slow, like, and 19... then like tears dropping yeah, exactly. on the cards. Like a 1980s style mm -hmm. kind of... Rose petals yeah, falling. perfect. Yeah. yeah. Right, we've got this. We have a project. Cool. Now. Well, we have some time. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't remember. It was a while ago. I ran into you and and your lovely son at the grocery store because yes, yes. I had no idea we both lived up here. No, I didn't know we lived up here either. No. I hadn't seen you in a few years. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Farrah Alvin, Broadway's Farrah Alvin. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of Broadway's XYZ up here, mm -hmm, actually. Mm -hmm. We live up in Upper Manhattan, and it's sort of becoming a new arts enclave yeah. because it's affordable. Yeah, we all just kind of keep moving like gypsies. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like, what's the rent? Okay, yeah. I'll move here. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also, while I was doing some stalking, um, I discovered that you have your own Wikipedia page. Did you know I this? I do. Yeah, it's a it's a stump page. I should probably have somebody fill it out. What stump means that like somebody kind of does like a like a mini bio of you, basically. Uh -huh. That's like almost like a placeholder. Okay. So it's not very fleshed out, but I, um. But someone made that for you. Someone made it. I think That's it was because of my dad, actually, because my dad is sort of a famous... We were just talking about... Mm -hmm. My dad is a famous movie poster artist, or he was. He's since passed away. But his name's John Alvin, and he has a fairly thorough Wikipedia page. And so I think at some point it's linked. So it says, daughter Farah is blah, blah, blah. And then, and then it links. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, that somebody told me that a couple of years ago, and I was like, cool, you know, but like... <laughs> I always geek out when someone has a Wikipedia page, so they didn't make themselves. No, exactly. Yeah. One time, the best sort of like, you're famous and you didn't know it moment that I had was, uh, <laughs> there's a, a music director that I know in the business who's a, a big deal crossword puzzle person, as a lot of music people are puzzle people, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. and he does like tournaments, and he's <sighs> like... Um, I know where this is going. Uh, well, anyway, he said he does like a billion different crossword puzzles all from all over the place, and he said there was a crossword puzzle where I was the clue. I mean, I was the answer. It was like Broadway's Alvin or something like that, and it was 
that was I was the correct answer. It wasn't you Alvin Ailey. It was Farah. Yeah. yeah, it was F A R A H, which is they're both five letter words. Though. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. But it was so. yeah. So yeah, I would was, have said that, Farah over. I was Ailey. I was apparently the solution to the puzzle at that point. That's so you amazing. Know. Yeah, I was like that is so cool to me. The the only other like the next step <laughs> is is Jeopardy, like right? Yeah, like, absolutely. Being a Jeopardy uh, mm-hmm. question or so. whole category. Or a whole category, yeah. That's, the, that's you know you've that's taken the over dream. the world. Yeah. So they'll all be listening to this podcast in the history, yeah. in the history books. <laughs> <laughs> so, fair. I mean, even though I've known you for years mm-hmm. um, and adored you from afar, where where do you come from? I grew up in Los Angeles. Okay. So, yeah, I that actually, makes sense with your dad's. Career. With my dad's work, exactly. Both my parents went. Both my parents are sort of spent their formative years in California and then wound up in LA at a, an art school call, called Art Center College of Design, which is um, now better known for um, industrial design, like designing cars and things like that. I mean, but it's a, it was, um, I want to say it was like, I'm trying to think of a comparison to like performing arts kind of thing. It was, I would say it was like the Juilliard in a sense, but it was more of almost like a trade school. So okay. more people went into um, uh, graphic art as opposed to uh, fine art which is like people know RISD Rhode Island College of Design things like that mm-hmm. School of Design they um and that's more fine arts institution and art center is a more commercial art institution and so they wound up it was sort of one of those this happens to a lot of artists where it's like I'll either go to LA or New York wherever the first job comes from right and the first job came from <clears throat> LA and that's where we stayed and so I grew up in Hollyweird you know that's like crazy. right in the middle of all of it yeah yeah I have some friends that were like very famous on TV shows when we were kids and, or, or we're in 400 commercials, you know, where you're like, remember that Sunny Delight commercial? That was my friend. You know, stuff like that. That's crazy. <laughs> That's really crazy. We got purple stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I knew that guy, but yeah, probably yeah. did. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, in fact, I've never met her, but, um, Candace Cameron, uh-huh. uh, or Candace Cameron right now, I guess. Mm-hmm. Fuller she, House. Yes. She, um, she, gra- she walked at my graduation. We technically went to the same high school, but no. she was on set, you know, all the way through or past even when we would have graduated high school. And so we, nobody had ever seen her ever. And they were like, Candace Cameron. And there she went. <laughs> so like, she must have technically been enrolled at our high school and wanted to walk at a graduation. And so there um, she was. I never met her, but you know. Yeah. So there were, you know, weird, um, it was a strange place to grow up, I won't lie. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like growing up in New York City, which my son is going to do, you know, so yeah. it's like, you know, uh, that's, uh, no, who grows up in this place? You know, I mean, who's from here? Like, there's such a... Very few of us. Very few of us. Most of yeah. us are, you know, sort of vagabonds that found our way here. Yeah. And so LA is a similar um, demographic, but I grew up there. So how did you get here? Or what brought you here? What brought me here was, I w- so I was uh, extraordinarily precocious about performing. I've been performing mm-hmm. since I was very young. However, growing up in a, like, a show business town, I was really tall. I'm 5'8"-ish, and I've been about this tall since I was about 12 or 13. Okay. So, that's not so weird. You go, oh, that's the tall girl in class, no big deal. Right. But in show business, when you want to be a child actor, they need you to look younger so they can work you longer hours. So, for example... You know, a fourteen-year-old can work more hours than a ten-year-old can. And if she looks ten, then... then we can work her for more. So you know, we can keep her on set for longer without having to take a break or send her to school or whatever. Okay. So I couldn't get hired doing anything because I was just too big. So I auditioned for stuff at various points in time. I had agents at various points in time, but I just never booked. So I got a lot of practice. Did that at... take its toll as a kid? 
It did and it didn't. In a way, it really prepared me for the odds of uh, the way show business actually works. You know, most people, I don't know, every if you're lucky, every 10 auditions, you book something, yeah. you know? Um, I mean, sometimes we go through periods of time where we have better odds than that. But other people, it's more like every 30 jobs. I mean, every 30 auditions. You never mm -hmm. know. So for years, sort of going in with no agenda, almost no, knowing I wouldn't get the job, but having the opportunity to audition was really good, a really good education, you know? Because it was like, well, I know I'm too tall to get this, but at least I know what happens in the room and what they're going to say to me and all that stuff. So I did that for a long time. And then I won a series of competitions when I was in high school like scholarship type competitions, uh -huh. and um, I'm giving you the real abridged version. Uh, I got uh, an agent through one of those competitions. I started working. I actually got my equity card when I was 17, and I finished my high school on correspondence. Um, so, like the end of my senior year until I walked at my graduation, yeah, I did on mail. Basically, at least before email. Mm -hmm. So, like, I'd write my homework and send it in the mail to my teacher, and they'd grade it and send it like back homeschool. to me. Like homeschool. Yeah, like homeschool. Yeah. But just for, like, three or four months, because I really only had... I'd been a good student, and I had maybe three or four... I think I had, like, a, a government credit I needed to take and, and a little bit of English and math. And so it's really, like, a little bit of school left. I finished it, got my card, did my show. And then after about a year living in L.A., I had everybody in... Most L.A. theater, a lot of L.A. theater, is people coming from New York, oddly. Right, right yeah. And so I did, um, actually, the, the concept album for Jekyll and Hyde. I don't know, uh, for anybody that's like a, a cast album nerd, which we were just saying neither one of us is. No. But um, there was a, the original concept album, which was Cole Wilkinson and Linda Etter. And then they did this big comprehensive album that was a black cover and it was a double disc. And it was Anthony Warlow and Carolee Carmelo and Linda Etter. And it was like this big, like, Jekyll and Hyde's coming to Broadway. It was like this big build-up, right? And I got hired to be on an ensemble of that. And, like, with the likes of Brad Oscar and um, Willie Falk, Christine Petty, um, like, all of these people who have gone on to have these extraordinary careers, but at the time were, you know, character actor gypsy types. And mm -hmm. all of them, to a person, was like, oh, go to New York. You're fine. If you can get this job, go to New York. So, like a crazy person, at 18, I came to New York. Oh my gosh. And I started working right away. I really thought I'd come here for a little while and then see what it was like and then go to college. But I didn't. Wow. So, it <laughs> led me on a very unusual uh, path. Um, and I'm very fortunate <laughs> that it worked out. Had, I not, had it not worked out, it would have been crazy, you know? Yeah. But it worked Thank out. Thank goodness so. it did. It did. So, yeah. yeah. And it, it, so my, my path here, even my path in the business has been very different. You yeah. know, you, like I know you went to uh, University of Oklahoma, right? Is that right? Uh, Oklahoma City University. Oklahoma City University. Yep. So all, a group of you came here together. Yes, so you have this community of mm -hmm. people that I kind of found in like a piecemeal way for myself because I didn't. You know, didn't have other people moving here with me. Yeah. And I was a child of the fetus. You were fetus. so young. Oh, my God. I was so young. Like Pesach and Paul Young. Yeah. 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 But I had a lot of... I've worked with the two of them. And, you know, what Benj and Justin have that I think is amazing is, like, when they were still in college, they had so much chutzpah. And they would just go... Like, they connected to people like Shoshana Bean and possibly Kelly O'Hara by going to the stage door and saying... Here's our demo. We love your voice. Would you ever sing for us? Mm -hmm. And they were so talented that as soon as the person listened to it, they went, oh my God, of course I will. Yeah. It took, it takes a kind of, for me anyway, a kind of naivete that it 
it would just work out. Yeah. That it that worked to my advantage. It wasn't until it occurred to me that it might not work out that like <laughs> I ever started to have things not go my way. Yeah. I've I've learned over the years like the worst someone can say is no. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So just ask. Yeah, exactly. You know? And the no is like if you allow the no to be a deterrent as yeah. opposed to all right, well that wasn't a fit or or a you idiot, you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I think there's something yeah. to even that kind of F you attitude of like, I'll show you who's you yeah. know Yeah. You know, that that puts that that drives you forward and if it if it if it dampens your spirit in any way, then uh, honestly I think in the long run this business isn't for you. Yeah. I'm mean, hard I as think, that is to say, but No, it's it's a hard thing to embrace as well. Yeah. Sure, I had uh teachers who were like, you know, that said positive things and some who said negative things. Yeah. And you know, and you just you have to decide, well, even as, like, you develop work and you get feedback and you're like, all right, well, how much of this actually resonates with me? That's right. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of, you know, like, oh, well, he said it, so it must be true. Right. Um, it's a tricky balance because yeah. you don't want to be that person that's going, oh, this person doesn't have any idea what Just they're talking about. not listening to anyone. Right, because yeah. it is a collaborative process and sometimes people really are hearing things mm-hmm. in a way that you can't because you're too close to it. Yeah. You know, and I remember um, not that long ago, I was working on a project actually that we mentioned Tommy Newman, um, that Tommy wrote, and I'd done a couple things with Tommy, and I he said something. He said, "Oh, I just realized something," and I said, "What?" And he said, uh, "You when you say I don't understand this, you really mean you don't understand it." And I said, "Well, what what else would I mean?" And he says, "Oh, I thought you were being like passive aggressive and nice. <laughs> you know, I thought you were trying to say this isn't any good." And you were trying to say it in a nice way. And I was like, no, I mean, really, I don't understand it. And I want your work to, you know, come up. I want it to elevate. I want to communicate what you want me to communicate. And I genuinely do not understand what I'm supposed to be doing here. Yeah, it's not a judgment. Right, it's not a judgment. And so that, I I mean, it was an interesting exchange because Tommy's a sweet southern boy, you Mm -hmm. know, like, and I was sort of like, no, I mean, I have... I'm, I grew up in a city and then I grew up in a city in a different way. And so like, I have this very abrupt kind of style of talking sometimes. And so I, I think, um, you know, he thought I was being like, I was trying to be critical when in truth, you know, I was trying to engage in the, in the collaboration. Yeah. And that's, I think, how do you, you know, how do you strike that balance? How do you go? Yeah, I really, I, I want this information and I want to process it. Mm -hmm. But I don't want this little piece of it. This part I feel strongly about. This part I'm flexible about. It's yeah. difficult to know. And I think that I think it just comes with time and experience sure. and yeah. being open. Yeah. And you know, and surrounding yourself with people that you've identified as this person genuinely wants to help. Yeah. And you know, like this person has a record of collaborative. Right. Of collaborative nature. Yeah. Yes, I think that's important mm-hmm. too because I mean I do a lot of new work with with yeah. writers like you. Yeah. And I do sometimes I will see someone. I remember one time years ago doing a thesis at NYU, and the director was very talented, but was essentially rewriting the piece for the Eesh, for the writers. And you're in such a vulnerable yeah. position there that, yeah. like, you know, there's a style that has to be um, you have to engage in in terms of your collaboration process mm-hmm. because it's very easy to get bulldozed, and suddenly you're you're not writing the show that you set out to write. Yeah, especially if you go right into grad school after undergrad. Yeah, I, I was there. I could. I was thinking about it yesterday. I was like, I was 22 years old in oh, grad you school. Were so young. That's crazy. And that workload is so intense there, and the mm-hmm. kind of work they challenge you to do there is so intense. Yeah, and then you know you're getting you're getting feedback from like these juggernauts yeah. in school theater. Yeah, and you're like, well, they must be right. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And they might be. Yeah. I mean, the truth is they might be right, 
But learning how to trust your instincts mm-hmm. is also important. Like learning how to filter that for yourself. Yeah. 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 It's so it's hard. Yeah, I you bet. Know? Well, like, I mean, you also, I mean, I know some of the teachers that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, but it happens in professional environments as well. Sometimes it's hard. I feel like we remember, every, even if we're being very evolved about all of it, every negative thing, every person, individual that said, you have no talent, we will remember forever. Oh, you absolutely remember that. Never let it go. Yeah. Whereas like a hundred people might say, you're so gifted and you'll be like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So like finding a way to kind of tune to <laughs> It just kind of gets frequency. muted out. You know yeah. Like, like, yeah. But they also said this other thing. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. How did you get involved with the musical theater writing program? Oh my God. It was ancient times. I mean, I just, it really was. <laughs> I think I did like, it was, I think I did like cycle like five or something there. Oh my there. gosh. My first project there, Alan Filterman, the casting director, used to cast for them before they had like this roster of people they could go to. Okay. And it was on, like there was, it, they were in the dance building on 2nd Avenue, which I don't even yeah, know that if that was, exists yeah. anymore. No, not it's that a, one. Not that, that, not that building, but like the one next, next to door. No, no, it was like a, an older, it's an older dance building. The dance department may still be there. It's like a, one of the older NYU buildings as opposed to that like newer building where you guys were. It was like a whole other building. Yeah, I was on 8th Street and 2nd, I was on 2nd Avenue. 2nd Avenue, but, it was but just there was a even a whole, a whole other, other building. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. and it was, um... Uh, I did Donna Di Novelli and Adam Cohen's thesis. Amazing. And, um, which is this really impossibly hard thing called Red, uh, that I remember very vividly because it was one of my first jobs in the city. Uh-huh. And then I just sort of stayed forever. I never left. <laughs> so that was 1996. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So I've done, I mean, I've seen so many people come through that program. Uh-huh. In different capacities. And it's been a few years, I mean, between, ha- like, having a baby and everything over the last couple of years. I haven't been in a few years, so yeah. there's a little time gap for me, but... So it's always interesting to go back and see what's Right? I was just there out. yesterday recording another podcast episode, and uh-huh. it's just... And now they're, like, in the Tish proper building. And it's oh, right, right. And it's a completely different experience yeah. over there. And, you're like, and it's a big class now, too. Yes. Yeah, so how many, many people were in your graduating we class? We graduated with 18 people. Which, even that was that big. Was big. I mean, it used to that be, like, big. eight. Yeah. You know? Well, there weren't that many people who identified that they wanted to pursue musical theater that's writing. Right. Um, educationally. Right. You know? Right. Well, and that's 20. I mean, when I was there, they'd been doing the program for, I don't know, six, maybe six years. Yeah. 10 years the absolute most I don't think so because I feel like they the used to like only accept like, a class every other year yeah like at the mm-hmm, beginning yeah mm-hmm. yeah it was like a long and so and I've been in New York 20 years I've been doing that almost it's 2016 so yeah wow. I've been doing stuff at NYU for 20 years yeah. oh my god <laughs> and then I dropped dead <laughs> Our next guest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so clearly the uh, like the graduate musical theater writing program, uh, to, at least from my perspective, has helped shape your path or def- helped define your path oh, as, yeah. in your career. Yeah. Would that be fair to say? Oh, totally. I mean, what, it did a number of things for me. Now, you're, just to clarify so that people listening understand how it works with actors, because it wasn't mm-hmm. in the program. Right. The program hires actors and directors to come in, and you get you know paid a a meager, paltry. <laughs> we can't even say modest. We can't a even modest, say modest. amount was once now <laughs> immodest. It's immodest amount of money to be there, and but I always say it's kind of like going to class as an actor because mm. 
you have for the 20 minute pieces, which the first year grad students do, you have one day to learn and then you perform the next day. Yep. And for their thesis pieces, you have three days to learn and one day to perform. And it forced me to be, I was an okay sight reader. It forced me to be a really good sight reader mm. because the time frame is so fast. So to me, that was like, oh, I'm getting paid to go to class, you know? Yep. And it also connected me. It's interesting because. It taught me a lot about collaboration. It, it taught me how much I love creating as opposed to replicating. So mm-hmm. I don't love to be... There are some great musical theater roles that I would love to do, but as far as I'm concerned, the, the my dream role hasn't been written yet, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, because I like to, to get involved in the ground floor and create and see the evolution of the piece. And then what happens, I'm sure you know this too as a writer, is that the writers become attached to you as the personification of the thing that they've written vocally physically energetically and so things start to get shaped around you mm-hmm. and Based that, your strengths. yeah and that's fun too because then you get to kind of you know feel like it's yours in a way that an existing role can never be right um so <coughs> excuse me so um you know that's um that has shaped it. And then, of course, like, doing shows like I Love You Because, which has become this, like, cult classic. People love that show. I met the writers, Josh uh, Saltzman and Ryan Cunningham. I met them there. I mm-hmm. did, like, I didn't even do their 20-minute piece. They were like, we're workshopping this song. Can you sing one song? And I did. Yeah. And then after many iterations of that show and readings and different people playing the role that I wound up playing... Eventually, it was like time to do it at NAMPT, and Josh called, and I was free, and that was it, you know? And they're still good friends of mine, and I'm so proud of them and what they've accomplished. I think they're the most, like, two of the most unsung writers that are out there right now. Um, But, um, yeah, I mean, that that show never would have happened if not for that relationship, you know, with NYU. Um, Does your... Is your own songwriting linked to that experience no. at all? No. No. Uh, and in fact, I mean, I really feel like I've been, I guess I'm just in a dry spell with my songwriting, to be fair. That's like, okay. You know how that happens. It's just oh, like, yeah. you feel like, I want to be creative, but there's not really the space to be creative. Mm-hmm. Um, no, my own songwriting, um, I started writing when I was about like 25, 26 years old. Mm-hmm. I write pop music. It's like, I would say it's like my biggest influences are people like Paul Simon or... Um, like, um, like early Tori Amos or uh-huh. when I wish I played piano like she does, um, the Beatles, um, you know, it's more, it's theatrical in its way because I'm a theatrical person, mm-hmm. but it's not theater music. Um, I think sometimes theater people relate to it because it feels that it feels, you know, theatrical. I would say like actually like kind of Ben Folds is like a good influence yeah. and a good parallel. Mine too, mine yeah. too. Yeah, so it feels like, you know, uh, I would say that what, what I'm not good at and I've never really explored is doing what you do, which is having the song advance a moment so we get only a portion of the whole story during the song versus my Be songs which feel self-contained. We have a, the whole the whole journey or teeny tiny journey happens yeah. in the course of the whole song. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I did an album in 2003, and I've been working on a second album for, I don't know, since then. Um, <laughs> it's in various pieces, and I'd like to start performing again, but, um, you know, you have to have time to rehearse and all, all that things. business. And yeah. money. And... and money, yeah, and energy to self-promote and make sure people actually come. Mm-hmm. Actually, when I started performing in the city, doing my stuff, there were more 
rock clubs, like, more kind of, like, casual, like, I don't know, like, yeah. you know, it wasn't like 54 Below, which is a fantastic place, yeah. or nothing, which is kind of what it is now. You know what yeah. I mean? There's, like, two or three places you can play and, like, not worry that you don't sell the place out. Right. But, yeah, even, like, the smaller venues, like, I've, I've got a concert coming up in April at the Bowery Poetry Club. Oh, like, uh-huh. I, don't, I don't even know how many it seats, but yeah. like, it's pretty small. And yeah. I'm already, like, really worried about it. <laughs> Most of the places that I have, that I played are gone. Like, I played CB's Gallery. It's uh-huh. gone. I played, um, I was trying to get into the living room and they closed or they re, uh, sort of reinvented yeah, themselves. Yeah, they did something else. Um, did I you mean, anything with, uh, like, the zipper? Um, no, but I, again, they closed I know. before I had a chance to. Oh, like, so I was talking sad. to them and they closed and... Um, I loved that place. I loved it. Me too. Um, yeah, so the, a lot of the places, like Bitter End is still around. I played the Bitter End. Uh, there was a place that we were trying to get live music started on Bowery that was um, next door to, I don't even remember, it was like a Cuban restaurant. <laughs> and uh, that place, I had a great show there, and that's, I don't even remember the name of it. It's gone. So, you know, it's the evolution of real estate. <laughs> These times. These times, they are changing. They are changing. Um, so you were in, you were on Broadway last season with It Should Have Been You. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. which I saw, mm-hmm. and I thought it was wonderful. Thank you, I, I love really, that show. I love that show too. Mm-hmm. Like, it just, it knew exactly what it was. Yes. And it knew, it, it knew its mission, and mm-hmm. it did it in such an economical way. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think it fooled a lot of conservative people into going to see it. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, with that huge twist that happens. Yes. Um, that, like, at least in my circle, no one spoiled it for me. That's, you know, actually, yeah. we lucked out. I thought, oh, once we open, everybody's gonna know that this is a gay show, that it's a marriage equality show, mm-hmm. and it's all gonna be turned on its ear. People were really good about mm-hmm. keeping a secret. Unfortunately, I think they were really good about keeping a secret See, that the, the show, show was good. <laughs> and so, like, you know, we could have maybe had more people. Yeah. And it was funny, actually, I had a conversation with another, uh, writer friend of mine who said oh it's like based on the advertising he had assessed it was like an old-fashioned style musical comedy which it Mm -hmm. was yeah and i said yes but we have a contemporary twist and he said you do and i said yeah and i said it you know i kind of revealed this i don't want to like ruin it for you but it's a marriage equality show because well i'll get to that in a second um and people uh and he was like it is i mean he says and he suddenly felt like we'd missed this whole audience by not advertising to the gay community and the gay-friendly community uh-huh. in that respect. But who knows? I mean, how do you market a Broadway show? It's a mystery. And um, I thought that they did... An, I mean, I happen to love our producers and had a great time working there. And yeah. I was... A, I'm In the subject of marriage equality, I was a standby... My job there was I was a standby for Lisa Howard, who was yeah. our amazing, amazing, amazing Another star. Uh, graduate musical theater writing program Yeah, staple. Person. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, and gifted. And so gifted. Uh, and a, I mean, a workhorse, like, I don't, I mean. I'm so glad that she got to perform that song on the Tonys. On the Tonys. And I gotta tell That's you, huge. that week, Lisa Howard, if you're listening, you know this, but you'll hear it again from me. She had to sing that song so many times. I think she missed one show that week that, I, if memory serves, I went on only for one performance that week. And I was like, ready, because I was like, she's gotta do the best one at the Tonys, right? Yeah. That was our selling point. And we had... You know, a regular eight show week. So she did like Tuesday, two Wednesday, Thursday. She maybe missed Thursday or Friday. One of those days after the show, they had a sound check for the Tonys. So she had to go and do it, sing it like two times full out after having done it. And then two shows on the week, on the weekend. And then the Tonys were on a Sunday and we had a Sunday matinee. So she had a Sunday matinee. 
and then went and sang it, and she knocked it out of the freaking party. Yeah, she did. I mean, it was the best one of the week. She's a star. And it was a true... I mean, I've known Lisa for a long time, and it was truly an honor to stand by for her, and I felt so, still feel so proud of her for what she accomplished in that show. However, the day that we got marriage equality, I happened to be on for her. And oh, wow. so you can find online, there's an amazing... Tyne Daly made an amazing speech at uh, the curtain call um, because her um, husband, uh, or I believe ex-husband, but I don't really know the particulars of her life, um, is black, is a black man, and her children are biracial. And um, when she got married, it was still illegal in the 70s or the 60s, whenever that was, it was still illegal to, in half the country, to marry a person of a different race. And so... It was very personal for her to have, as a com- you know, as a country, accomplish marriage equality, and then to be in a show about marriage equality and accepting who you are. It was mm. a very powerful moment. And there's somebody videotaped it, and it's online. And Tyne makes this gorgeous speech, speech, and I am literally like blubbering like an idiot behind her. Like I'm wearing a wedding dress. I just took the last, final bow of the show, and I'm crying like the ugly cry a little bit, like trying to be pretty but which is the worst just a recommendation to all of you just just, just let it go yeah just let, let it go it like a dina just uh, invest <laughs> invest in the ugly cry because the ugly cry with the weird smile over the top <laughs> is a very very bad combo which i now know because it's on the internet forever and so ever. yeah it's <laughs> amazing yeah. yeah i thought I, I really, really appreciated that show, and I thought it closed ahead of its time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this is a strange, I mean, it's a strange climate I think we're living in on Broadway. I think there's amazing artistry, and then there are things you literally scratch your head and go, I have no idea why anybody greenlit this project, yeah. which obviously isn't ready, and cost millions. cost millions of dollars. Like, why, and or why is this still open is a question I find yeah. asking yeah. a lot. And then other things come and go that you think... God, I mean, I've never been... I had a conversation with Chip Zion, who was one of the stars of It Should Have Been You, and I, the times that I went on, I've never experienced such a, such consistent laughs. Like, you could almost set your watch to them, like you knew the build of the laughs, even like there'd be uh-huh. a big laugh, and then a bigger laugh, and then a gigantic show-stopping laugh and applause. Like, almost felt like there was a laugh track to the show. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, it was so consistent and well, that's a very smart like almost like a sitcom yes well vibe, yeah which the writer the writer brian hargrove writers, yeah right? is a t- brian hargrove who wrote our book is a is a very experienced sitcom writer and our director david hyde pierce of course knows that timing yeah. like it's in his body yeah so um of fraser fame yes of fraser fame um so he he really timed it like a, you know it was set like clockwork yeah. and chip said you know i'm I have less experience on a Broadway stage than Chip does. And Chip was like, I've never experienced anything like that. That consistency. Uh-huh. So you felt like, oh my God, this is like, people love this show. And they did. People did love it. Yeah. Um, I just, it, it was, sometimes you go through a season where people are a little highfalutin and snotty and they want high art, which uh-huh. our show wasn't. And nobody ever pretended that it was. Yeah. I thought that was like its greatest strength. Yeah. Yeah. It absolutely knew what it was, uh-huh. you know, but it just wasn't for whatever reason, it wasn't the right climate for it. So who can say? I mean, I would not want to be a producer of Broadway shows. I mean, it's like yeah. you have to have a gambler's mind, I think. Yeah. And I don't. I've been trying to think in my head how to segue into your holistic stuff. But, oh. um, but that might be something to talk about. Because okay. how have you, I mean. How did, how did I get into How that, did you right? segue into holistic yeah, stuff? Yeah, well, so, I mean, I think that. 
because you're a you're a certified holistic health counselor. counselor yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you are AADP certified. Yeah, that's American Association of Drugless Practitioners. So that's yes. like sometimes masseuses or or um, you know acupuncturists or energy therapy people will fall into that heading. Um, and um, you know, I actually you know health and wellness. I won't say it was always um an interest of mine but it's been an interest of mine for i don't know i want to say like at least 10 years or more um i used to be uh not only very overweight but also just sick i was just not a well person i was kind of a sick kid and then i was just a person that always got sick i had very low immunity i never felt very strong and um I sought out basically alternative medicine at a certain point after really kind of running out of options with uh, allopathic Western medicine mm-hmm. and had great success. I mean, really turned some things that felt like inevitabilities about my health, turned them around completely and now no longer have a problem with them. That's incredible. Yeah, and I mean, I attribute that entirely to to reaching out outside of uh, sort of what we consider... Um, traditional practices in the States and so or in the Western world um, and so at some point um, I don't know I don't want to say I got I certainly don't get bored with show business it's not possible yeah but show business is a for me anyways a kind of a diminishing returns uh, investment you know mm-hmm. there's no there's no end right so when yeah. it's when it's Let's just say you were just always doing something creative, like it was your job simply to create, and it didn't matter if there was product made, it didn't matter if it was, in quotes, successful, it didn't matter if you were making enough money to support yourself, like if you took all of that out of the equation, I would, like if I were simply a a gentleman of leisure who enjoyed (laughs) doing theater in my spare time, I mean, I would always be happy with what you know, with the opportunities that come my way. But when it's like, I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent unless I get this gig, it takes so much joy out of the experience. And I was really trying to find a way to have balance in my life and feel like, um, I don't know, just feel like, like that was not my world, that it was not everything. You know, your identity is tied to what you do as an artist no matter what. But I was like, well, who else am I? Like, there's this... um, there's this book called used to be I uh, used to be called anyway, What Color Is Your Parachute? Did you ever hear that book? No. It's supposed to help you find like what you know what you're meant to be in terms of like your career path. If you're like I really don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And as I mentioned before, you know I'd always been on this trajectory. Like yeah. from a very young age, I knew I wanted to be a performer. And so I went, well, what else? I didn't read What Color Is Your Parachute. I just happened to know that that's the the idea behind the book is like who are you naturally you know are you mm-hmm. a person that people come to for advice and you know and that they're they're needy are you great with kids are you great with older people you know maybe your career is as a nursery school teacher or an elder care person you know what I mean like yeah. finding who you are innately and because I'd always found myself since getting my health in order people going well what would you eat or I'm having this weird thing and what would you do I found myself giving a lot of, like, basically totally uneducated information. (laughs) Um, Not uneducated, but just only my experience. And I looked into the possibility of becoming a registered dietitian, which is about half of medical school, frankly. It's like a lot, a lot of stuff. And it also puts you on a path back into that Western medicine world again, you know, and in conjunction with it. And it wasn't really what I wanted. I wanted something that was more like life coaching, but around the subject of 
food and nutrition and I wanted to understand what food did, what exercise did, what it really did in my body. Um, and from a lot of different perspectives, I didn't want to just hear what it's doing on a biochemical level. I wanted to know what it's, what's happening on an energetic level. Um, I wanted different people's ex experiences and perspectives. And so I found this great school and I started, um, um, doing a lot of reading and then eventually <clears throat> I enrolled in school and I've been practicing in a private practice, um, since 2010. Wow. So yeah. That's terrific. Yeah. I was, um, so I do all my research on Wikipedia. Yes. Um, I could, if people don't know, holistic health or holistic medicine is a diverse field of alternative medicine in which the whole person is focused on, not just the malady itself. That's right. That and I, that's, that's pretty accurate. And I would also say that my, my use of the word also is inclusive of a lot of different modalities and a lot of different uh, expressions of nutrition. I mean, I think you can ask anybody, you know, what is health? I ask people this all the time. What does it mean when you say I eat healthfully or I right. eat healthy food? What does that yeah. mean? That means something totally different to everybody. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a multi-million dollar industry built on that in, in publishing and in diet products and yeah. experiences. Everybody has a different experience of what that means. So what's right, my, my philosophy with clients is what's right for you may not be right for somebody else. And so it's important not only to consider the whole person and their lifestyle and what's going on with them. I mean, right. if you're having a specific health problem and you're a lifelong vegetarian, and I think that the vegetarian diet is not really helping you, it's going to be really difficult, frankly, for me to say, listen, I think that you should completely switch to, you know, a paleo lifestyle where you're eating tons of meat. Yeah. That's going to be an impossible transition, and the fact is it may not fit into your life. You know, if you're a mother with three kids, and I ask you I ask you to prepare, you know, your all of your food 100% by yourself, you know, that's that may not be possible for you right. with yeah. three children. So, you know, we have to work on who, who you are. Yeah, there's not one diet. There's no, one. exactly, and I have to be able to say, well, look, something from this diet, uh, nutrition philosophy may work for you and something from this nutrition philosophy, something from Eastern medicine, something from Western medicine. Let's find a complementary kind of palette of things that fit into your life. When do your clients typically come to you for help? When? Like when in their lives? Like what types of troubles are they most commonly facing? So I, um, my particular focus, like my, my, I would say areas of specialty, but also what I like to do best um, are um, digestive disorders and women's reproductive health. Okay. So that's what I like to do. But I would say for the most part, people that come to me um, are kind of uh, needing a change in their life, needing support and help in that change and accountability yeah. as they go forward. And also, um, for whatever it is that's going on with them, whether they're coming to me with a digestive disorder or they want, they have weight that they want to lose and they're having trouble following through with their own diet decisions, whatever those things are. Um, I think they're also people that have kind of exhausted all, a lot of other options. Right. They've, they've tried the, they've gone to Barnes and Noble and bought 75 books off the shelf and nothing is really helping. Or yeah. they've been to the doctor and they say, I don't feel well a hundred times. And the doctor says, well, your blood work is fine. There's nothing wrong with you. And then they go, well, there must be some other way to approach this. And mm -hmm. that's often when people come to me. Hmm. Um, and they've kind of like exhausted the traditional resources. Yeah. Or they don't, for whatever reason, mistrust the traditional resources. Now I'm, I want to say for the record that I'm a big believer in Western medicine. I think like it's absolutely amazing what Western medicine can do. If your 
part doesn't work, they can give you a new one. That's incredible, you know? But the, the model for Western medicine as it exists now is, um, and even just Western medicine thinking, so I'll extend that to like scientific approaches to food, is totally disinterested in why something happens. So there's... It's, there's no... Um, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. it's like the... Um, like the, the proactive approach versus yeah now we got to fix it. Like exactly. It's a problem. So Eastern medicine is in the idea of both like Ayurveda and acupuncture. Eastern medicine, which are older... Preventive medicine. Preventative medicine and, and also older traditions of medicine are interested in let's keep you well so that something doesn't become severely out of balance. Western yeah. medicine deals with, okay, now that you're severely out of balance, what can we do to fix that thing? Sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing that's happened a lot with the Western approach to health is that nobody's thinking about, again, to use the word holistic, nobody's thinking about the whole body. So you might be having a skin problem and a stomach problem, and no doctor, not no doctor, but few doctors are going to go, I think this is the same issue. Yeah, these are connected. Your body is connected, you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't think any, I think everyone that lives in a body can acknowledge that, you know? <laughs> um, and the mind body connection is a huge, huge factor uh, that, again, as medicine is expanding and is progressing, um, we're, there's a lot of research about that. But that's something the Eastern world has known and acknowledged for. I don't know, 6,000 years roughly. <laughs> so, you know, that, that I think is just an important thing to be able to offer to people and, and open a door for them, you know? It's beautiful. Um, can you anonymously brag on some of your success stories? Uh, how do you, you mean? <laughs> like, I mean, oh, like client without, confidentiality. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah. so, you know, I have one, <laughs> I have one client who um, I'm, I'm super proud of who, in the course of us working together, I think he was aiming to lose about 30 pounds and has lost 50 pounds and has kept it, kept it off for the last two years. That's awesome. He's really changed his whole life. This is something I actually say to all my clients is, um, you know, be prepared for bigger life changes to happen, like beyond like just my body is changing and this experience is changing. Because when you start taking care of yourself on a fundamental level, I eat well, I sleep well, I move my body. That's like the basic. That's the basics of, of maintaining a human body. Yeah. And most of us don't do a great job of those three things. So when we learn how to do that, it's like laying down a super solid foundation for your home. And you can build an incredible structure on top of that. Most of us are building a structure on scaffolding and there's no floor, you know? Yeah. So when you start to refocus that energy and build a really, really strong foundation based on taking care of yourself, it's very hard to stay in a relationship with somebody who doesn't really have your best interest at heart. It's very hard to be in a job with where, that isn't fulfilling the rest of your life, the rest of your dreams. Yeah. And those things start to change. So, I mean, I have one client who, um, in the course of working together, decided to leave New York and go uh, pursue his sweetheart in, in Oklahoma and get married. Um, you know, I've seen a lot, actually a number of marriages, a lot of job changes. <laughs> I'm, I'm particularly proud of those things because I think that's an extension of being well and treating yourself well. Um, a lot, most of my digestive um, people, there's a couple of people that we continue to work and struggle with certain things, but most of my people coming with digestive issues have um, discovered what's causing them and resolved them, hmm. which I think is, I mean, part of the reason I like that is that that's a problem that I used to have when I was not a well person. And to have, for me, what happened, it was like I had a nutritionist say, um, 
take this particular food out. And I was like, you're out of your mind. That is the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. And I took it out and I was fine. I mean, it was like after a lifetime of not being well, I took this food out and I was fine. So like to be able to offer somebody that kind of information to yeah. know, and it doesn't always work that way. I mean, sometimes it's not that simple. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for certain people to go, oh my God, I've struggled with this forever and it's been a total mystery. And now I'm just not eating... You know, now I'm just not eating wheat or I'm just not eating dairy or I'm just not eating soy. And this problem has completely resolved itself. Wow. It's really, um, that's actually quite fulfilling for me. My goal is never to keep people in practice forever. I want them to like get well and get out. Yeah. They will live their lives. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What percentage of your clients are, you know, like where the the problem is, uh, the, the issue is in, um, like food and food movement choices mm-hmm. or it's like an emotional so like where like yeah you chicken the egg yeah so it's hard to know i would say percentage wise yeah, i think but... everybody is an emotional eater i mean, to some extent some sure. of us are more aware of it than others and yeah. some of us use food like a drug more than others do oh i certainly do yeah i mean i think yeah. a lot of us do and and i think that there's good reason for that you know having having a young child you know my my son was breastfed and the the breast is comfort so that's comfort for from literally since we're born. Yeah. Food and comfort are associated. They go they go hand in hand. Yep. So that carries forward as we get older, and a lot of times, uh, for people that are real emotional eaters or who suffer from what I would call disordered eating, as opposed to having a specific eating disorder, huh. right? Um, like there are specific eating disorders like anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, all those things. Those are things that are diagnosed by a doctor or a clinical therapist. Um, and, uh, but there's a lot of people who have, there is actually an eating disorder called eating disorder, not otherwise specified. My sister has that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just kind she of. She blogs about it. So oh, I can say Oh, it's interesting. That. It's yeah. the, you know, that they, it's Ednos, right? It's mm-hmm. what they mm-hmm. shorten it to. So, um, I think that sometimes we, we establish relationships with food that have nothing to do with food. Oh yeah. That have nothing to do with nourishment. And so I think there's a time and a place for experiencing the emotional comfort of food. Thanksgiving is a perfect example to mm-hmm. me or any kind of holiday or something. For me, it's Passover. Like when I drop a matzo ball into the hot pot of soup, it smells like Passover. It smells like history. It smells like my grandmother's house. It smells mm-hmm. like so many things to me. And that is an important association that I, I don't, I'm proud to have. I don't want to not have it. But if I need food... For something other than nourishment, and I've I've expanded that emotional um, attachment beyond, um, then I'm not really using food in the same way that food is designed for me, right? Right. And so if every meal has to be a special meal, if every meal has to make me feel good on an emotional level, um, I'm not really experiencing food the way food is meant to be experienced. So. Everybody has variants on this. You know, some people have it more than others. I don't know anybody that, nobody that comes into my office anyway is totally emotionally disconnected from food. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. There probably are people like that in the world, but they're not having a weight problem or health problem, and so they're not in my office. Right, yeah. You know? They're just eating a lot of celery. Exactly, and they don't care, you yeah. know? some pe- There are some people that don't care about food. I don't understand those people. I've never met them. No, but, yep. you know, so that's true for some people. I would say, I mean, to make a gross generalization, yeah. my female clients, are a little more in touch with that uh, than my male clients. So my female clients sometimes want to talk about the emotional experience of food out of the gate. And my male clients are like, what do I eat? And then about like the fourth Mm -hmm. or fifth session, male clients start to go, you know, I really 
just ate Chinese food the other night and I didn't really want it and I was having a bad day and I'm like, okay, let's, let's crack this open a little bit more <laughs> and talk about why, you know? Yeah. So it's a little bit of both. And one of the things that we learned at Integrative Nutrition, which I think is so great, is this concept of primary food, which means that your primary food is actually not the food you eat, but the things that feed you that aren't food. So mm. your spiritual life, your community, your physical activity life, um, you know, your create your did I say creativity? I didn't. Your creativity, all of those things. If we can really use those things to make us feel yes. whole then we're not going to use food the same way. Right. Yeah, like replacing the ritual a little yeah, bit. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes, like, I know for myself, like, my spiritual life is very connected to my physical activity life. So I've been practicing yoga for a long time, but I do other kinds of activity. Even if I can allow myself a 15-minute run, it's not a lot of time, but breathing clean air and moving my body and getting a little sweat on, having 15 minutes of total silence to myself, that's really, that feeds my soul. And then I'm not walking around in like a deficit mode all the time, yeah. you know? So finding that balance and where those connections are for people is really important. And, you know, I'll be honest with you and with my listeners. Like, I'm personally not taking the best care of my body right now. It happens. And, um, you know, a couple of other things just felt a little more important to take care of, of and address. And, you know, yeah. um, so with that, are there any free general bits of advice you would want to share with? me and my listeners? Sure. I mean, the first thing I'd say would be just to kind of expand upon what you just said, which is that I just ask my clients to really be realistic about where they are in their lives. Sometimes everything else is more important than what you're putting in your body and how you look, right? Yeah. And I think where a lot of people beat themselves up and get really caught up in things is I don't have time to take care of myself this way, but I'm really pissed off that I'm not looking like a supermodel. Right. And the reality is that, like, there is, there. this is where math is math. You know what I mean? Like, you can't, there are only so many hours in the day, if they're not being spent taking care of your body, your body is not going to be taken care of. That is okay. That's totally okay, and it's okay with me, even with my clients. But you have to be okay with it. You have mm -hmm. to accept, like, oh, well, you know, so I don't look awesome right now. But there's no, I'm not ready or willing or able to put the time into looking awesome right now. And when yeah. I am, it's going to mean something else that's being prioritized right now is going to have to fall by the wayside. Right. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. You know, you have to just accept that's reality. So... That And that's fine. Like, that's the truth. Anybody, especially, I find especially with my female clients and moms especially, there's this expectation that you should be, you know, working, you know, full-time, making lots of money, totally supporting yourself, having an amazing creative life, spiritual life, in an incredible relationship, taking really good care of your spouse and your children, and you should also look incredible at the same time. All the time. All the time. Forever. Forever, every moment of your life. And frankly, that's just bullshit. You know, like, that's just not possible. Yeah. So it's a, if you want to, first we all have to like live in a realistic space and say, yep. this is what I can do right now. If you are in a place in your life where you're like, I'd like to do a little bit. One of my teachers at school said something I thought was so smart, which is like, if you're doing something 51% of the time, you're doing it the majority of the time. Ooh, I like that. Right? So. Yeah. It, maybe you can even do more than 51%. Maybe you can do 55 or 60 or 70% of the time. 
I think that we really screw ourselves up when we get into an all or nothing mentality about health. Yeah. I have to be at the gym for an hour every day. I have to have a green juice every morning. And if I can't do that, I might as well I'm just failing. eat popcorn out of a bag and sit on the couch, right? Yeah. So that's not true. I mean, I ask my clients this a lot. Is that if you exercise, if you, if you have it in your brain that you have to exercise for an hour every day, right? Or let's say yeah. six days a week. You're looking at six hours of exercise a week. And you only make it to the gym, I don't know, once a week because you can't make it six days a week, right? And you beat yourself up and you go, there's no point in going if I'm only going to go for a couple of minutes. Right, right. If you did whatever you need to do, 15 minutes of jumping jacks and squats and sit-ups in your apartment, six day, 15 minutes in your apartment six days a week, you're actually exercising more than you would if you only made it to the gym for that one hour, right? Mm, yeah. So, and if you did that every day, cumulatively, you'd have a lot more exercise per week, per month, per year. So sometimes doing a little bit can be a huge step in the right direction. And I mean, for anybody that really needs help, I mean, my door is open and my consultation is free and I work on Skype and I work on, um, on the phone for people that aren't in New York City. Um, you know, if you really need the extra help, if you're like, yes, but what does healthy mean? That's kind of what working with me is for. Mm -hmm. But if you have a sense of what's healthy for you to some degree, I would say, you know, my my general philosophy about food is eat as close to the source as possible. So that means if it had if it grew out of the ground or it had a mother, it's food, right? That's the whole list right there. It's food. Yep. If and then sometimes there's a secondary question to that, which is like, well. This, you know, this whole wheat pasta, this pasta grew out of the ground at some point. <laughs> then I would say, well, then ask yourself, how long is the story from how it grew out of the ground to where it is now on your plate? What, well, how long is that journey? And if it's three or four steps, maybe that's a few too many steps. And try and keep it closer to one step. So, like, if you were going to eat farro or whole wheat, or whole, uh, wheat berries, which is like, you know, whole wheat, um, if you just cook that up like you cook it for rice then that's whole wheat. That's really actually whole wheat. Yeah. Um, whole wheat pasta is also made from whole wheat and is a better choice for you than, say, white pasta. Right. However, if you the whole wheat pasta story is it was whole wheat and then it was ground down into a flour and then water and egg was added to it and it was turned into noodles and then those noodles were dried and they were put in a box and then I reconstituted them with water and now they're on my plate. That's a long story. And your body, your body works better when the story is shorter and when the process is simpler. You know, when it's like, I say sometimes it's like if your body were a computer, sometimes the way we eat is like we have all of the programs and all the windows open. And it's a lot oh, for yeah. it to do, yeah. right? Your computer's going to work better, faster, more efficiently if you just have one, one program open and if you close a thing and let it, re you know, yeah. like mine rest. right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. There's too many things going on at once. Yeah. And that, that's in terms of like what you're putting into your body. So yeah. sometimes a simple version of just taking care of yourself is just eating simpler, making sure if you're, there's a big difference between, I don't know, a Mexican meal, like tacos and like some chips, which are things that are delicious by all means. Yeah. Um, and you could do a sort of healthier version and have more vegetables in there and have grilled chicken, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, that's a different thing for your body than a piece of grilled chicken and a big sweet potato and broccoli with a little olive oil or butter and sea salt on top. That's a very simple meal and it's very understandable for your body. The more you can lean toward that direction, the latter direction, the the more better you're going to do for your body on a regular basis. Yeah. 
you mentioned I was going to mention it next, but yeah. uh, you have free initial consultations. Yeah, my free my consultation is free, and it takes about an hour. Okay. And I have people fill out a form. It's kind of like the kind of form you fill out when you go to a doctor's office for the first time. Yeah. Except the questions are more about you know your food situation presently and in the past and there's some questions on there people I'm sure like why is she asking me this but it's because a lot of like there's one question that's like what's your um what is your ancestry um you know which is like for that the reason that's there I'll just say in case anybody's interested is like for some people um you know you'll hear a statistic like something like 60% of the world is lactose intolerant or even 70% of the world is lactose intolerant. That's because most people of Asian and African descent are lactose intolerant and the majority of the world's population lives in Asia. So yep. if you are a, a white person <clears throat> living in America, chances are you descend from Northern European people in some capacity mm-hmm. and most of those people have adapted to be lactose tolerant. So it doesn't mean that you're fine with milk. That may be an issue for you. However, you're more likely to have a certain way of eating that suits you versus a person whose ancestry comes from somewhere else. It's tricky in America because most of us are a conglomerate, you know? Yeah. We can eat whatever we want and we're, uh, we, we, we have so many different options. That's right. And, so, and But sometimes, you know, so sometimes it's helpful information in terms of getting a whole picture of somebody. Yeah. Um, so that's what we do. We go over this form and then we talk and we get a feel for, I mean, you're, everybody listening is getting a feel kind of for how I work and what I talk about, but yeah. you get a feel for how it works on a one-on-one basis. And then, um, you know, deciding, I think deciding if it's right for you is really important and that consultation time allows for that to happen to because you go okay this was interesting I'm not really ready for this level of accountability (laughs) but most of the time I think by the time people take the trouble to set up the consultation they're ready to talk about it and they're ready to get help yeah so well I'm gonna schedule one for real for real oh good yeah oh good great 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 yeah yeah so we're gonna talk more about that I'm excited let's see two more questions before we set up the song yeah um how has holistic health influenced your work as a performer oh my god vice versa so much actually well i would say (laughs) let me start with the second half of the question being a performer has influenced my ability to build a business in a really good way yeah like one of the things they teach you in school which i think is a great skill is like how to get clients and it's literally like Walk up to someone, say hello, hand them your business card. Because some people don't know how to talk to people. (laughs) And, like, that's obviously not an issue at all. And I would say, I mean, because of who I am, I don't know, maybe, like, a good 70 to 75% of my clientele are people in the business. And I really like that. And, I mean, I I remember at some point a a friend of mine in in show business said... Um, you should start working with like doctors and lawyers and I've had some people who are doctors and lawyers mm-hmm. I just don't like them as much as I like the other <laughs> I people like I like them fine <laughs> I will work with you a doctor or lawyer there is a personality quality that I, I really like about people in the business and I relate to it I understand it yeah. so you know when you're when people are like oh my god I'm my life is crazy right now I'm in tech and I'm working on three projects at the same time I know what that means yeah so I think that there is a, you know, a rapport that gets established quickly Absolutely. because of that. So I, I think that's influenced that, that, you know, just my associations with theater people has influenced a lot of my clientele. In terms of being, like how being a counsel, holistic health counselor has influenced my, who I am as a performer, it's actually made an enormous impact. Yeah. And the biggest reason is that in those situations, like what I just talked about, like, oh, it's tech week and something crazy is coming up. 
my priorities about how I take care of myself are totally different than they used to be. Yeah. I used to really be a person that was like, I will just push through and I'll, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. I didn't take time to make sure I was well before I went into those difficult situations. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to love being on a show schedule. I now kind of can't stand being on a show schedule. I love being on a rehearsal schedule because I've somehow magically shifted from being a night person to being a a morning and a day person. God bless. God bless. I really kind of don't know how that happened, but it did. (laughs) What what it was essentially was experimenting with that and finding, oh, wow, I, you know, it's only nine o'clock and I've accomplished so much. You know, uh, once you learn about circadian rhythms and that we're animals and that we follow them too as much as we would like to fight it, um, (laughs) you know, and you go, let me see how that works. And you feel the difference of that. It's changed things a lot. And I would say also it just, it's helped balance things for me because show business is so ephemeral, you know, it's, it's, and it's short lived um, every show will close. Even Phantom of the Opera will close someday. They, oh, can you believe that? It will, though. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even if it means that a nuclear bomb drops on New York and closes the show, the show will close someday. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's hard to imagine a world without the Phantom, but um, it will happen. We have a world with the cats for yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. For, a mo- for, for like a two more bit. seconds. For a hot second. Um, but the truth is that, like, you know, every show will come and go uh, and and has a beginning, middle, and end. And we kind of are always in the middle of it, right? So yeah. um, <laughs> there's, um, there's a transient quality to that. There's an impermanence to that that we all accept and embrace when we're in show business. Yeah. But it also means that... Um, especially for those of us that do a lot of new work, you go, oh, I know I've got a two-month run, and then you're, you know, looking out at the horizon of, of no work for who knows how long. It's, that's a lot of, um, that's hard to balance. It's just hard to balance your life because your, your life changes so significantly, so quickly, Uh so frequently. So knowing that my health is important and that part of my job is being a healthy person and expressing what a balanced, moderate, healthy life looks like to my clients, I have to stay in that space even when I'm doing a show at the same time. Interesting. Yeah, So, yeah, yeah, because who wants to come into a holistic health counselor's office and she's, like, rubbing her nose and she's got a rash on her skin and she's falling asleep and she's got big bags. (laughs) You know, you'd be like, I'm out of here, you know, as fast as possible. So I have a responsibility vis-a-vis that job to stay well, to stay in a balanced space. And it changes what I'm willing to do and say yes to on the other end, which Mm. is good. Because as you know, sometimes we say yes to too many things in show business because we're afraid of like, what if this is the big opportunity? Yeah. And it, it takes a lot of the pressure off of that. So... It's had an enormous impact on who I am. I mean, maybe it's meant that that it's foreshortened that career. I really don't know. But in terms of how I feel uh, about it, um, I feel much healthier about my show business career. That's awesome. Well, I think you're nailing it. Thanks, dude. You're welcome. (laughs) Uh, My last question, uh, we've, you know, come, we've touched upon a little bit here and there, but um, you also, in balancing your life, you, you balance a marriage yes and you balance raising a child yes um what is as, as someone who feel who feels often overwhelmed and like i have a you know 45 hour a week survival job mm-hmm. and i compose and i have a boyfriend that i love and i have a dog mm-hmm. and you know and i feel overwhelmed sometimes yes. yeah most of the time yeah like 
how are you? I don't know. I mean, how do that's you? how I do it. I how do you do it, Murphy Brown? I have no idea how Murphy Brown does it. I mean, <laughs> truthfully, it is a learning curve for me, and I have embraced the idea of of um, not really knowing the answer to that question. You know, yeah. like I I don't I think that um, for this con- this for women we have been hearing about the having it all concept yes. forever. And um, there's sort of new movements in what I guess would maybe be the fourth wave of feminism to talk, third wave feminism or the end of the third wave to talk about um, making, making choices within the context of what we can have, right? So I, I think that, I think we have to find a way to be at peace with what there is no room for right now, uh-huh. you know? And uh, I will say, you know, I lost my, my dad, who I was very close to. My dad passed away at 59, and he was extremely, he was an artist and a gifted artist and totally invested in his work in a really, really inspiring and intense way. But I also think it was largely responsible for his death because the stress level of that and the importance of that was so great that there wasn't time to say, you know, I think I want to take make sure I've got an an hour or half an hour or 15 minutes to move my body every day. I want to make sure that there's time for me to get my head shrunk once a week and uh and take a breather. I want to make sure that I can go to the golf course and, you know, and hit golf balls because it's meditative for me. I want to make sure there's 10 minutes to meditate in the morning and I'm going to carve that time out for myself. Something has to give, you know? Yeah, yeah. Something has to be sacrificed. That's not bad. That's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean you're failing. No, it means you're choosing, right? It means you're making a conscious choice to say, this is where my priorities lie right now. And honestly, I mean, what I'm saying to you right now, I was just talking about with my therapist to say, like, <laughs> I have to learn how to be at peace with this idea. Yeah, so it's a I'm practice. Not, like, yeah, it's, it's a practice. practice. I'm not... I'm not totally zen about this idea, but I also know that like there are days where a nap is more important than a workout because I'm tired. Yeah. And I, if I'm if I'm tired and I keep pushing, then I lose my ability to parent well, to wife well, to <laughs> to perform well, to teach well. I lose all of it. Yeah. So you know I gotta take it. This is the old. I mean, it's becoming a cliche statement, but when you're on the airplane and they say put your own oxygen mask on first before yeah. assisting others. We know that intellectually, and yet we don't do it almost all the time, Yeah. right? So it's a constant reminder to myself, like, I must be a whole person. I must take care of me, or everybody else suffers. So when, you know, my husband or even my mother or my child needs something, (coughs) sometimes my son is two, and sometimes he has to scream for a second because mommy has to pee. You know what I mean? Like, I have to, and he has to learn that. Like, he cannot have that exact toy at this moment because otherwise mommy will pee on the floor and that won't be good for anybody. Yeah, I want to dietate him. Right, exactly. So, like, you know, it's, uh, it also is just, I mean, I think all of it is about, for myself anyway, my, my process in all of that of, like, how do I balance it is I have to learn how to set my boundaries. I have to know, and there are days where I fail, and there are days where I succeed, right? So there are yeah. days where I go, oh, I set that line way too far away from myself, and I, that boundary was way too far away, and everybody walked right all over me. And so, I, I mean, it's tricky, you know? Yeah. Um, and you just keep tuning in to what's working and what's not working and being present. I think being an artist helps in that way, too, right? Yeah. Because we, we have to do that as artists. We have to go, 
I like this. I don't like this. I want to stay in this uncomfortable space for a little bit longer and explore. I don't want to be in that uncomfortable space any longer. We have to constantly kind of, um, ebb and flow. And, um, that's, that's how I'm doing it now. I have no idea if I'm going to be able to (laughs) sustain it, but I think like I'm a big advocate for the concept of sustainability, you know, as an environmental concept, but like also as an emotional concept. And I work on that with clients too. Like this is great for now. Can you do this 365 days a year? And if the answer is no, let's find a moderate version of this. So you can do it 365 days. Yeah. So, um, that's a creative way of thinking. And so that's that's what I'm trying to do for myself. And like I said before, you know, I love writing music. I'm in a dry spell. There's just not that space. Yeah. I was talking to actually another writer friend of mine about this, that if you say, okay, I know, I'm a writer. I have to create time to write for myself. I'm going to send the kid to daycare and I'm going to sit at home in front of the piano and I'm going to write. And there are days, other writers out there know this, there are days where you sit down for an hour and either you write absolute crap or nothing. Even though you've set the time aside to write, Mm -hmm. nothing really comes out, you know? Mm -hmm. Maybe a sentence, maybe a line, maybe a phrase. But it's kind of, it has a tendency to feel like a wasted hour. I disagree. You do? Yeah, Yeah. well, just part of, I I feel like the act of showing up Mm -hmm. is so important. Yeah, it's true. You know, even if you are just staring at that piano for an hour, I think, um, I don't, you know, if I do feel, I think it's the same thing, like, if you're, if if you can't fall asleep, it's like, well, then maybe you don't need to sleep right now. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, so get up and do something else yeah. or whatever. Like, you know, don't feel like, well, this is what I'm supposed to be sleeping or like I'm supposed right. to be creative right now. Like right. that's the least, that's probably the least likely creative moment you're going to have. You're like, no, I'm supposed to be creative. That's true. Like, yeah, that's true. And yet I think that yeah. there's, when there's all these other, when there's all these other people, I mean, especially a kid, yeah. right, that the pressure, it feels higher pressure, right? Like I, I yeah. only have this hour. Yeah. Right. And so you're right. I mean, I agree. I agree with what you're saying. I think you're right that like the act of showing up, just saying I set this time aside to create and that's part of the creative process. Even the tacit nothing that comes comes out, that's still part of the creative process. That's something I haven't been able for myself lately to create the time for that kind of space. Yeah. I just have to be a piece about it, you know? Yeah. I call that bandwidth. Like, I just, yeah. I just don't have the bandwidth. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a balancing act, but mm-hmm. whose life isn't a balancing act, you know? Yeah. Some people, I also think, last thought on this is that most of us, especially those of us that create our own careers and our own schedules, mm-hmm. most of us create a, a, a jail for ourselves, a trap for ourselves that we feel we can't get out of. And we created it. Like, if you built the jail, you can build the door too, and you can get out. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, most of us say, I have this crazy schedule, and this crazy person, and this crazy dog, and this crazy, <laughs> all these things in my life that have to be accomplished. Well, we chose all of that. Mm-hmm. We decided on that. We all have free will. And so, we have the will to change that story as well, mm-hmm. and and create a life that seems more balanced. It's, we sometimes feel like we don't have it, but especially people in the arts. We always have the opportunity to do that, you know? Nice. Yeah. Well said. Thank you. Are you welcome? Speaking of stories. Yes, tell uh, <laughs> Now comes the time where we're going to set up the song. Uh, Farah was kind enough to learn and rehearse and perform a brand new song uh, called Tell Me a Story, which is from my musical Mackenzie and the Missing Boy. And um, I've, been developing, I've been developing this piece on and off for about five years. And it's now in its 
third-ish incarnation, and as such, this is uh, my third attempt at writing uh, Mackenzie's uh, what's called the I Want song, where mm-hmm. we're kind of establishing what she's going to want and what she's going to like pursue for the rest of the show for the mm. next two and a half hours. <laughs> and um, like the first incarnation, uh, what was it called? I can't even remember what it's called. Um, Against the Clock, I think. And she, uh, in that in that version, Mackenzie was like an aspiring actress, and she was sneaking off to an audition. And then, like, yeah. And then the second uh, incarnation was called Twisted Beginning, which um, my friend Shayla Benoit sang on my podcast last season. And uh, that song was about the reward notice uh, concept. Mm. Uh, she was singing more like to and about the reward notice. And it had a very uh, JRB six eight drive to it. Oh, totally different. Yeah, totally different. <laughs> and the ly- um, and the lyrics were a little general because um, that was kind of the conceit that the that the song like I wanted all the songs to feel like you could lift them out mm. and do this thing. Mm-hmm. And that I've learned since that draft that like not all the songs can have that rule upon themselves mm-hmm. um, because you also have a story to move along. Right. And, you know, especially in that moment where we're talking about what she wants and what she's working for, we can't just talk in these larger, like, it's not, it's not going to succeed in the way that I needed it to succeed. Right, it's to not get specific people on board. Enough. Yeah. Because, yeah. mm-hmm. um, like, they, if they haven't fallen in love, if they haven't, like, gotten on the McKinsey train at that point... They're like, not going to. They're never going to. Right, and then you're fighting a real mm-hmm. uphill battle after that. Yeah. Right? If she's your leading lady. Exactly. Yeah. So this version, called Tell Me a Story... Uh, now she's, um, like, she's lost her son, she's lost her freedom, she comes back to New York, she finds her sister, she finds her son, and, um, the sister, uh, she's found them, uh, but her sister is hell-bent on keeping Mackenzie, uh, as far away from her son as possible, and this is that moment where Mackenzie confronts her sister, and, um, has this moment of, you know, you, you, you tell me that I'm this terrible person who's like lies and stories have gotten to her a lot of trouble which is true but my stories also kept us alive and kept us um like kept us surviving and so that's what this moment has become now and then um there's gonna be there's moments where there's intermittent dialogue and then at the end um mckinsey finds this reward notice and decides that it is going to be the uh instrument through which she's able to uh get her son back and so now the song, I think, is closer than it's ever been to actually doing the work that it needs to do and is evocative of the period mm-hmm. and um, and all that good stuff. And it was really fun to watch you. You're the first person to sing it all the way through. That's so cool. It was fun yeah. to sing it. it was Thank fun you. To sing it. It, yeah. it, it, it fit your pockets very nicely. Yeah, it was. You, I thought, well, yeah. I, I have no idea how Joel sang it on the, uh, like, sang it through so I could learn it and uh-huh. I, somehow in the same key, which to me is like an amazing. I was like, how? He's like, I hope this key is okay. And I was thinking like, okay, weird man key. And it was... <laughs> actually perfect so that was interesting um thank you that rarely happens for me usually i'll have to um usually like the the key of joel and Uh the key of the girl is usually about a minor third yeah i was gonna say that's that's usually what i have to deal Mm -hmm. with with a man's voice like yeah but um weirdly we have the same range yeah great (laughs) (laughs) Um, so um, we need to be singing together more exactly yeah um uh yeah well wait why did that come up oh Oh, I thought that's like I was just gonna say like yeah. the, you know the time period is very clear, and I've never Thanks. sung 
um, anything that you've written the music to before. You have not. No. no. Because, so, um, so well done, sir. It's Thank you very, very much. Good. I, I didn't know what that. to expect, and I was like, oh, yeah. this is good. This is sassy and good. Thank you. Like Thanks. That. That's what I want. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Fair was accompanied today by uh, my, my good friend Josh Kite, who has accompanied like the last four episodes of the podcast, so uh, he's becoming a, a staple as well. Um, let's see. He's got a show coming up at 54 Below in late April, so look him up. I'll probably include a link to that. Uh, remember, Ferris Performance will uh, be available to stream on SoundCloud and brand new this season on YouTube. Uh, I know, it's fun. Uh, be sure to follow me on all like, social media, and you may find those links and so much more on joelbenew.com. Uh, I just realized that my Kickstarter campaign for my Murder, She Wrote album will be over in two days from this air date. Oh, so, so hurry up and do it! So donate. hurry up! What are you waiting for? Oh my god, there's only two more days! Go, yeah. go, go! Yeah. Murder, She Wrote! <laughs> we probably already met the goal. <laughs> That's okay, you That's can okay. still keep put going. more money keep in. Keep going. <laughs> Oh my god, I hope that's what's happening. <laughs> You're going to secret it now, right? Totally we said it. We put it out there. Right. Yeah. Uh, and please follow uh, my guest, Farah. She's, her her website is farahalvin.com. Um, where else are you on the I'm interwebs? on all the social media, and it's always Farah Alvin. So I'm at Farah Alvin on Twitter. I'm Farah Alvin on Instagram. I'm, uh, I, I don't think I'm following you on, Facebook, on Instagram. Oh, let's do that. I think I may have oh, well. actually just followed you this morning on Instagram. Oh, I was right. adding a couple people. Maybe, nice. maybe not. I don't know. Um... Uh, anyway, um, oh, and also on, uh, what's the other one? Facebook, that one? Yeah, that one. I don't know if you've heard of that one. No, I'm just, I'm on my, MySpace. Right. <laughs> Still on MySpace. Um, what was the one before that? Friendster. The Friendster. <laughs> <laughs> my Friendster account is blown up, you guys. But, um... I on Facebook. I have a public page on Facebook, so like me on Facebook, and awesome. I do post do a lot, a good amount. I'm not the best tweeter in the whole wide world. Um, <coughs> no, no, I'm not great about. It. Like, well, I'll tell you this: I do post different. I have diff- I don't uh, use the same. I don't do the same thing on all three aspects yeah. of social media. That's so, yeah. um, Twitter, uh, I need to be better about. Um, and on my Facebook page is where you'll often, my website's woefully out of date. Um, but it is still functional and you can reach me there if you want to email me personally, if you're interested in a health consultation and there's some testimonials or some video, there's stuff like that. Yeah. Um, although like some of the reviews I haven't put up in like maybe two or three years. Ooh, Whoa. Joel, help me. I anyway, um, <laughs> I know a guy. Um, but um, but I'm always whenever I've got something going on, uh, you know, at a, a one night concert or something like that, I'll always post that on Facebook. So uh, on my Facebook page, and sometimes on my Twitter and my Instagram tends to be a little more present tense as opposed to this is what's coming. Got it. So you know, like this is where I am right now. So if you wanted to get con- tickets <laughs> to this concert, you missed late. it. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that's kind of uh, if you're if you're looking for what she's doing next, please like me on Facebook, and I will always be there. Terrific. Okay. Uh, and please subscribe to rate review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Um, you know, in order for it to gain more visibility on iTunes, like they only care about those five star ratings and like leaving reviews. They don't know how many. They don't know, nor do they really care how many times the podcast is getting downloaded. Um, which you know, I have very healthy numbers in that way. But like, mm-hmm. if you're not leaving reviews or ratings, iTunes just doesn't just care. Too. It's weird. Um, so thank you in advance, and thank you to those who've already left nice little uh, readings. Uh, special thanks today to uh, Josh Kite for accompanying us today, uh, Stephanie Layton, who uh, handles my graphic design, Peyton Royal, who mans my website, uh, Joel Dickinson, who uh, arranged the uh, outro music that's happening right now beneath us. So good. 
Um, my friends over at the Murder We Spoke podcast, which is a podcast where they recap uh, Murder She Wrote episodes. Amazing. And it's hilarious. Uh, the, the lead guy's name is Ben. Ben, thank you so much for supporting my Murder She Wrote album and for pledging to it and for tweeting about it. And, like, I love Murder We Spoke. I can't say enough nice things about them. Um, and last but not least, Farrah Alvin, thank you for being on my show today. Thank you for having me, This Joel. was such a nice conversation. This is a great conversation. I feel like this is the longest we've ever talked. Probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, where there was not, you know, intermittent singing. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I'm excited to share this song with everybody. And um, and that's that's a wrap from my apartment in Inwood. This is Joel B. New. And Farrah Alvin. Saying thank you for dropping by for something new. Bye. Whatever happened to the sister who'd protect me, who'd swear to never leave my side? Who is the sister with a heart set to reject me? The one who raised me must have lied. Must have made up the girl who tucked me in at night and pray, then asked me to do what I did best, make the monsters go. story, one where the heroine starts out poor. She's a real beauty, but she don't know what the fuss is for. She's just a peasant, one that's about to get her due. Tell me a story of fancier variations of both me and you. Tell me a story, one where the damsel's in no distress. High in a tower, hair miles long and a silky dress. She's got a sister, and they're the very best of friends. Tell me a story where a happily
Tropical Media.